Today's sermon text is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 26. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Do you realize that uh, one-third, probably close to one-third of your adult life, uh, will be spent in work, in toil, in labor? a big part of your life. What do you struggle most about work? Uh, do, do you struggle in terms of the relationships that you have? Do you struggle with the commute, the hours, the type of labor? Are you satisfied with work? According to surveys, only 43% of Americans are satisfied with what they do. In fact, only 17% of Japanese are satisfied with what they do. You know, this whole idea of being unsatisfied at work, I mean, it really is the genesis of a, a restaurant chain, TGI Fridays. Thank God it's Fridays. I mean, it's people that live for the weekend. We don't want to work. You know, what would it be like for you to say, thank God it's Monday, or that you want to work? Well, you know, this idea of work or labor is the third area that Solomon investigates, the preacher investigates to discern, is this where meaning in life is? Is this where it's to be? Remember back in the chapter 1 in verse 3, he says, uh, what does man gain from all of his toil with which he toils under the sun? In other words, it, 
what do I gain? What do we hope to, do we have meaning? Do we have purpose? Do we have value by all of our labor and work? Is this where it's at? And remember, when he says toil, that Hebrew word, it means, uh, it means anything from washing the clothes to running a company. So it's the daily activities of life. It can be significant things, it can be insignificant things. But do you gain purpose? In other words, will you end up at the end of your life, after all of your labor, will you end up satisfied? Is that where you have to invest? Well, this is the journey he's going to take us on. Whether it's your work or what your work produces, the possessions you have and the accomplishments you, you gain, maybe that's where meaning is. That's what he's going to investigate. So we're going to follow the same pattern. We're going to look at you know, the search for meaning, how he tried to find meaning out of his success, and then the discovery that he makes. That's the second point. What does he discover? And then third, I would like to introduce to you kind of a, a silver lining again, kind of the light piercing the darkness. It's, you can almost call it a second discovery. It's in 24 to 26, and I think there's hope there for us. Ecclesiastes, remember, is probably the truest book. It resonates with us. We can echo its words well. But before we begin on the search for work, look with me at 12 to 17. Because in 12 to 17, he seems to almost retrace his steps in pleasure and wisdom. Look at me in 12, because he says, what does man, excuse me, he says, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. So I think he's looking back over his past two searches. He said, I saw there's more gain in wisdom than in folly. And there's more gain in light than in darkness. And then he goes on and says, yet I perceive the same event happens to all of them. So I think what he's saying is he's kind of stopping and he's parking. And he's saying, listen, we've looked at wisdom. And can you gain meaning and value from wisdom? Uh, can you gain it from pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure? And I think what he's saying here is wisdom's probably better. I mean, if you're going to spend your life pursuing something, to pursue wisdom would be better than just to pursue dissipation or, or just you know, seeking bodily pleasures for yourself. But here's the point he's making. Wisdom doesn't have the answer either. I mean, wisdom can't untangle the knots of life. Wisdom can't straighten out the crookedness. So the more wisdom you gain, the more trials you see, the more injustices you see, just because you become more intelligent or more filled with knowledge, it doesn't give you the key to figure out what am I supposed to do with my life. What he's saying is, even if you were the brightest person or even the most licentious person, it's all going to end in the same. The fate is the same. The destiny is the same. The same event happens to both. Look what he says in 16. He says, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have long forgotten how the wise dies like the fool. So the preacher is just saying, listen, the end is the same. Death swallows up all meaning, is what it does. This is why I think he says in verse 17, I hate it life. I hate life. Why? Because death ends it all. There's no remembrance. I, I mean, you may have attained the top of your field, whether it's sports or thought or poetry or finance, whatever right? Fashion. You can be the most well-known person, but in the end, you are just like the unknown person. Well-known, unknown. Death renders everything meaningless. Now, th there's, 
there's value in this. There's a warning, actually. I think there's a warning for those who are young. You know, those of us who are getting older, our bodies and our mirrors are telling us things are changing. The runway is getting shorter. Uh, we've passed the midlife crises. Our careers haven't been what, they, what we thought they might be. And so there's all this evidence coming to us that life is becoming more and more brief. But those of you who are young, you're 20, you're 30, even into your 40s, you're still fashioning out your life. You're still trying to figure out, what do I want to do with life? What does it mean for me to have a successful life? The warning here is do not pursue things that do not last. And wisdom and pleasure, they're momentarily wonderful, but eternally not. And so don't waste your years pursuing things that death will just bring an end to and all will be forgotten. That's the warning. I think there's also a warning to the, to the person here who is uncertain about God. Maybe you're here with a friend and you, you really don't know uh, what you believe about God. You're not certain what you believe. Uh, you know that there's probably something out there, but, but really you don't know what it is. It, it's ironic here that, that he is railing against death. I mean, think about it. Death is kind of natural. It is universal. Everybody dies. Gender, culture, age, nobody survives death. So, so it's universal, and I would also say that it's inevitable. Nobody avoids it. And so why are we surprised, and why are we upset that people die? It's a fairly natural thing. There isn't anybody that we can turn to and say, well, they got away with it. And yet we rail against it. We want more. We want there to be something. Why do we want it? It is not in our experience that we should want that desire. Why is it there? Well, I'm going to argue, of course, both this week, next week in chapter 3, it says that God set eternity in your heart. In other words, it's evidence to you. And if you're a skeptic here, I would really ask you to consider this afternoon, why do you want life beyond the grave? Is it not that God has given you a desire that is not natural to you? And it's not natural to your experience, but you want it. Why? And I think it's because God has placed it there. And then the third warning is for all of us here. The third warning is that the nature of this life works on something called diminishing returns. You know, it's, it's interesting with life. The more that you get in life, you will find the less you enjoy of that which you get. The greater experiences that you have, there is a decreasing joy related to those experiences. In other words, God has so designed that the gifts of this world cannot take you up to the fill line. You can't be satisfied. You can't. I know you think if I just had this, that, or, or someone else, it cannot satisfy. The world is built. The gifts of God are built to have value in themselves. They can't, it's like drinking salt water. You know, you drink salt water, you think you're slaking your thirst. But what's happening is you're becoming thirstier. And then you drink more and you get thirstier. There is no way, it's a warning to us that in the acquisition and the collecting of things, there will be no end and there'll be no satisfaction. So it's a warning that he's coming back to. So in 12 to 17, he's kind of looking back. We looked at wisdom and we looked at pleasure. Neither will give us that sense of, I'm satisfied. I, I really am happy now in life. 
Okay, so let's pick up the search where he begins in verse 18, where he's going to look at work. Maybe, you know, the preacher could have said, you know, pleasure wasn't it, wisdom isn't it, how about work? Something with my hands, something I build, something I construct. And so he looks to find meaning and pleasure in all the things that he's done. Now listen, nobody better should be able to do this search, right? The search is done by one he's built. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 4, last week, he built parks, he planted forests, he put in fruit trees, he built palaces and he built houses. I mean, if somebody, if somebody wants to find meaning out of accomplishments, it would have been the preacher. You know, he's done so much. We think of Henry Ford or we, we think of Bill Gates. We think of people that have really marked the culture. But, but look at what he did. This is a pre-scientific age. And he's building palaces and houses and, and planting forests. That's a big, like a national forest, not just a few trees in the front yard. And, and here he is. Does he have happiness? We have this adage that uh, the one who dies with the most toys wins. Well, surely he should have won. Well, did he find satisfaction? Did he find contentment in all that he did? Can you imagine all the buildings that could have his name on it? I mean, he could just walk around for days just enjoying the fruit of his labor. But was he happy? Well, before I answer that question, before we get to the discovery, uh, let me ask you something. Do you try to find an identity? Do you try to build an identity on the gifts that you have or the jobs that you do or the labors that you undertake? I mean, I, I know most of us would say, no, 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 I don't worship my work. I don't idolize my work. But let me ask you this. You know, it is interesting that we often, the first time we meet somebody, we usually ask them, what do they do? We don't ask them who they are, where they're from. We ask them, what do they do? Uh, th there's this inherent value that we place upon what we do. We want other people to hear what we do and think well of us. I think that's why we've, we've had this kind of changing of names for certain jobs. So when I was a kid and I'm laying in bed and I'm here, the garbage truck go by and a guy picks up the can. He was known as the garbage man. That's what he was. He was the garbage man. He took, a, took the garbage away. He got paid to do it. Well, soon he became the sanitation engineer. He, he was an engineer of sanitation. It, it, it sounds better. I'm sure it makes him feel better. My mother was always known as a homemaker. Now she's kind of a, a residential specialist. You know, she, she kind of knows how to specialize in residential behaviors. You know, w w there's this uptick in names, I think, because we do want others to value. We build an identity on what we do. And to have a name that is secondary or, or perhaps even servant-ish, you know, we think that relates back to our value. Do you tend to overstate what you do so that people might be impressed? Do you overstate how busy you are or how needed you are? Uh, do, do you tend to find yourself getting very excited when you leave a review and you receive high accolades? Or do you plummet? when you're criticized at work or you say something that turns out to be false or wrong. You make a bad decision and now you have to face up to your peers when you've been wrong. You know, the, the, why do you work? What's your motivation? You know, what do you do with the person, the woman who's checking her emails out while she's at her kid's sporting event or the dad that busts out the laptop on vacation? Is he doing it just because he wants to keep up? Or is he afraid 
Or, or does he want to be seen as better than the others? He doesn't want to be seen kind of losing ground. You know, all of us tend to build our identity on what we do. That the temptation is there. So when the kids were younger, you know, I'd be working on a sermon on a Saturday, and sometimes I'd give it an extra hour or so just to clean it up and to make it a little more airtight maybe. And I was always confronted. I'd always ask myself, Tom, why are you doing this right now? And three answers always came to my mind. Number one, I want people to understand better. Maybe these tweaks and these twists will help you understand the scriptures better. Uh, another answer could be, well, I want God glorified. I want him glorified in all that I do. Uh, the answer tended to always kind of move back to, well, no, I wanted Tom to appear better. I, I wanted to look better. I, I wanted you to appreciate the work more. It was about me. It was about me. That, that's what tends to happen is we tend to build an identity and we tend to develop a value on ourselves and the things that we do before others. Well, will that, will that lead us to happiness? Will it lead us to satisfaction? Well, let's see what he discovers. You know, because the preacher here could probably outpace all of us in terms of his success and his accomplishments and his fame and the acquisition and the possessions he had. But what did he find? Well, look with me at 18 to 21. In 18 to 21, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? And yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. He goes on to say, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. So a person who wants to try to build his life or her life on the works that they do or the uh, accolades that they receive or the accomplishments that they achieve. Here's what he says. I gave my heart up to despair. Why? Well, it's fleeting. You hear what he says, I hated my toil. It's fleeting. You can work your whole life. You can produce great things. You can acquire great possessions, but you can't keep it. You can't keep it. It's only temporary. You've got to give it to someone else. You've got to pass it on. You can't last to keep it forever in your own name. And you give it to somebody, you may not even know who gets it. Now, maybe you're blessed and you give it to someone who will care for it, but maybe not. Maybe not. You, you, you pass it all. All of the work that you do for the 50, the 60 years that you work or live, and it all gets passed on to someone else. And they may be a fool. They may not even appreciate it. They haven't lifted a finger to do the work. They haven't dropped a, a, just a bead of sweat to do the work. And they can just flush it all away. That's, you want to build a house. You want to build a life and identity on something you can't even control. When you think about the president's administration comes in, works eight years, and he sets the the country in a direction and a chorus and establishes, you know, kind of enacts, puts in laws and direction, and then the next administration comes in, it's a different party, they just change it all. Just stop a lot of things and change it. Where's the legacy? Well, maybe they, get, they end up with a, a presidential library. Maybe that's what they walk away with. But, but nothing lasts. It's fleeting. To put your hope and security and satisfaction in things that you can't even control. That's why he says in Psalm 39, 
He says, each man's life is but a breath. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. I mean, just consider that for a minute. If you build your house, if you build your identity on the things that you do, it won't last. You're going to give it away, and you won't know how it goes. Can you imagine Thomas Jefferson? Here he passes to the next generation this idea of democracy, the establishment of the United States. What would he say about what we've done with that gift? What would he say to us? How have we handled that gift? Has it not changed from what he understood it to be? As in part. Now that just is it fleeting. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. Look in 22 and 23 with me. He says, what has a man from all of his toil and the striving after his heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. He's saying this. The reason you don't want to try to build your life around the work that you do, the accomplishments you make, is because it's vexation. Your days are filled with sorrow. Now this makes sense if you're a farmer and you're having to clear a field of rocks and you're under the sun, you're sweating, you're toiling. It's a lot of hard work. You're clearing of weeds and brush and the like. Or in our own day, right? You go to the office, you're spending eight, nine, ten hours a day. You're working hard, you're diligent, you're keeping your mind focused. But it's not just physical. It's not just physically draining and frustrating. It's also mentally. I mean, the changing technology, you have to keep adapting to new technology, new forms, new processes that the company gives you. It's constantly shifting, everything's moving. Or emotional, the emotional frustration of it all. You get passed over. You don't get credited for what you do, or you may get blamed for what you didn't do. You know how the office politics work. I mean, it's emotionally draining. It's frustrating. And not only that, you don't get a break at night. I mean, you wake up at night, you're worried about it. Who here hasn't woken up at 2 in the morning thinking, why did that person say that? You know, why did they make that decision? Hey, I, I, I heard that there might be layoffs coming. And then your mind starts turning. In other words, what he's saying is to try to get meaning and value out of work is lunacy. Why? Because it's too frustrating. It's too fleeting. But not just that. Let me give you one more. It's forgotten. What you do won't be remembered. It, 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 won't, it won't last. Death ends all memory of the hard work that you've done. You think about that. I mean, some of you... You've lived long enough and worked long enough. You don't even remember the work you've done. You've forgotten some of the things that you've done. You know, so a number of years ago, I preached in 1 Peter. You don't all remember that, do you? A lot of work went into that series. I'll just say that to you. Could you say that you've forgotten I preached 1 Peter? Well, the irony was that I thought, I've enjoyed 1 Peter so much, I'm just going to finish it out. And I'll, I'll do 2 Peter. So I went to begin gathering the data, and I realized I had a few more books than I thought I had on Second Peter. And, and so I opened the computer, and I look at a file called Second Peter, and I had preached Second Peter, and I preached it here. And I'm thinking, I forgot that I preached Second Peter here. Your, your work's forgotten. You forget what you do. So to, to build meaning and purpose on val and, and my value related to what I've done when I can't even remember, what does that say? You won't have any. An author asked this question. He says, have you ever gone into the bedroom of your child and long since moved out and considered all the weeks, the months, and years of labor poured into that son or daughter? 
a work no one noticed in the past, let alone will remember in the future. And all the work that we pour into our children, much, much of it's forgotten. You know, no matter how high you climb up the rung on the ladder of success, in the end, we're all at the same level, about six feet under the ground. We're all at the same level. To build your life on work, the accomplishments that you achieve, the things that you do, is futility. So Leo Tolstoy, many of you uh, read uh, his book, uh, A Confession. It's also titled My Confession. He's a Russian writer, world famous. He says this, he says, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of all questions. It lies in the heart of every man. A question without answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed this way. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me doesn't destroy? I mean, think about that for a moment. I mean, let's just be, you know, kind of gut level honest here. You know, what do you gain from all the toil with which you toil under the sun? It's vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. Think of how many of us at times have just poured our lives into work. We've sacrificed very important things in life to make sure we do the job, we get the job done that we often walk away with our chest kind of puffed because we've done really well, or our chest is sunken because we've done really poor. We have just seen the value of our life, the, the life that we've been given by God. We look at the value of it based upon a work, a work that is fleeting, frustrating, and ultimately will be forgotten. What do we do? I mean, we've looked at wisdom. You're going to say to me, well, preacher, we've looked at wisdom, we've looked at pleasure, and we've looked at work, and none of them will give me meaning and purpose and value. So what do I do? Am I bound to a life of frustration and cycle after cycle of, of happiness, of sadness, of happiness and sadness? Are we just bound to be the hamster on the wheel, just spinning and spinning, but never going anywhere? What do we do? Is there any hope for us? Is this book just to be one of despair? No, I hope you haven't found the book to be despairing. I think the book is so real. I mean, I resonate with this book. It is so in our face. The hope comes in 24 to 26. Remember now, we are in one sermon. I preached it in three because there's too much to do, but from 112 all the way to chapter 226, it's one big sermon. He goes after wisdom. He goes after pleasure. He goes after work. And in the end, here's what it comes to. 24 to 26 is where light will pierce the darkness. It's really an encouragement piece. In fact, in fact, theologians call it an enjoyment passage. There's five enjoyment passages in Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, 3, 5, 7, and 9. Listen to what he says in 24 and 25. He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in this toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? He's calling us to a joy. He's calling us to find a joy in God. 
I'm encouraged not just because it's an enjoyment passage, but God's mentioned. We haven't heard much of God. He's been kind of creeping around the edges of the passages that we've been studying. But here we see him explicit. The hand of God delivers joy. So what he's saying here is that in this life of exile, in this life of difficulty and trial and meaninglessness, you will find a deep and abiding joy from the hand of God that you ought to eat and enjoy what you eat. You ought to drink and enjoy what you drink. You ought to work and enjoy the work that you do. He's saying, all the gifts that I give to you, enjoy them as for me. As a faint reflection of the ultimate joy I will give you. It's not some nihilistic creed, you know, hey, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's, it's not some, you know, kind of carpe diem, you know, seize the day because tomorrow we... It, it's not fatalistic at all. He's saying, God, God is saying, I have given you many simple things that are meant to give you joy now, but reminding you of the ultimate joy that you will have with me out of exile. That's what he's saying. One author said it this way. He said, we can eat and drink and be merry, not because that's all there is, but because that's what there is. He says, this also, excuse me, he says, God has given the good things of this world to us, and they are their own reward. So God is saying, in this life of exile, in this life separated from God, he is still ministering to us by giving us joyful things, you know, such as eating, such as drinking, such as marriage, such as work, such as children, such as friendships. And these things are to be producing joy from God for you. But you cannot take them unlimitedly, but limitedly. They are only meant to have the reward that is part of their nature. You can't overtax them. See, we live in this age of tension. And this is why I think Ecclesiastes is so helpful. We live in this tension. You know, so in the book, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, right? It was summer reading. The beginning line is very memorable, right? It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. I remember reading it. I want to say, hey, Chuck, what is it? Is it the best of times or is it the worst of times? Well, you know what? It was both. And that's the point. I never did read the book. I thought, well, I got the storyline. Now I can go on clip. <laughs> but the reality is that's the tension we live in. It is God has given us good things to enjoy, and yet it is an exile. It is in difficulty. And this is where preachers get it wrong. You know, some preachers want to just go down the road of prosperity. You know what? If you believe and if you trust God, he's going to give you what you want. He's going to make you happy. He's going to make you wealthy. He's going to make you healthy. He's going to make all your needs go away. That's the way God is. He's a big God. He just wants to give it to you. That's the prosperity path. The poverty path is another. You know, some preachers say, you know what? This isn't your home. You can't really have joy here. You just got to slog it out. There's really no happiness to have. You just got to be faithful. This in your home. You got to wait till heaven. And asceticism is the way to go. Suffering is okay. And they go down that path. And I'm saying they're both wrong. What he's saying is there's a tension here. There's a tension in this life. We live in exile. We are not with God. We're not going to enjoy this world. The happiness that he intends for us will not be in full measure. But he is giving us shafts of joy through the gifts that he gives to us. And that is what makes up this life. So when we get sick, we're not surprised. When my brother got cancer, he said, why shouldn't it be me? 
was a legitimate question. You know, we, we say, why did I get it? Why am I getting sick? You say, why shouldn't it be me? That is life in exile. Sickness and death come to all. We shouldn't be surprised. What we ought to be doing is looking to God who gives us the joy. So let me give you four takeaways to try to see how do we live in this tension that we have. And, and, and the first takeaway is that I, I hope from Ecclesiastes you can gain a sober look at life. You can understand the nature of this life. You know, we live in exile, so life is not the way God intended it to be. You know, when he said, I hated life, he says, I hated toil. You know, when Carol and I were raising the kids, we'd always tell the children, you know, don't say hate. Well, I don't know that I was wrong in doing that. Should we not say hate? Well, it depends, right? I mean, David hated the enemies of God. Jesus hated death. You know, it's understood in John chapter 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. The language seems to imply this, this high rage and anger in Christ at death. Shouting at the tomb, come forth, Lazarus. He's angry because death is a distortion to the way that God has created all things. There is a frustration, there is a futility that we have to endure in this life. And so we are fools if we try to get more out of this life than this life can give to us. To build your life or to build your value or to build your identity on what you do in this world is a fool's errand. It's not meant to bear it. It's a vapor, it's fleeting, it's frustrating, and you'll be forgotten. Why do you think, chapter 7, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, it's better to go into a house of mourning than to a house of feasting? He's saying, hey, if you got a funeral or a party, go to the funeral, it's better. That seems so odd to us. I forget the name of this author, but I remember the quote. She says, you know, we are the first generation to think that life should be free of trouble. Before, they used to say, do we have food for winter? We don't have those problems anymore. We've forgotten. This life is one of exile. That's why Jesus says, don't store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. destroy. Store for yourselves treasures in heaven. We live in exile. This is not our home. But we want to enjoy what he gives to us. So in the book of Jeremiah, I'm reading through that in my Bible reading plan. I'm in chapter 25, depressing. He's speaking about how the Babylonians are going to come and take all the folks in Jerusalem and haul them off to Babylon. It's just going to destroy the place. And they'll be there 70 years, but they're coming back. If they heard him, they're coming back. But later on, Jeremiah says, hey, listen, when you're there, build houses and plant gardens. In other words, enjoy what I give to you while you're in exile. That's what we're to do here. There's a joy, and that's the second issue, is to enjoy the gifts that he gives you. Don't trust in them. Don't try to milk them for more than they can produce. Just enjoy the gifts that God gives to you. The eating, the drinking, your marriage, your children, your relationships, your church. Try to enjoy them. None of them are going to be perfect. Your marriage isn't perfect. Your kids won't be perfect. Well, I, I'm still surprised, parents. We do think our kids should be perfect. They're not. Enjoy them. God wants us to be a people of joy, of happiness. You know, it, 
So H.L. Mencken was a, uh, a writer, American essayist. He was a yeah, he was a Baltimore guy. Actually, was born in Baltimore, raised in Baltimore, died in Baltimore. But he was no friend of Christianity. But he had this famous line about Puritans. I love the Puritans. That's why I remember it. But he said um, he was anti-Christian. He, he says, "Yeah, the Puritans." He says, "There are people that live in fear, a haunting fear that somewhere someone might be happy." You know, it, it, that's the picture of Christians, right? If, if they're happy, hey, you shouldn't be happy. You're a Christian. And, and what he's saying here is be happy. I give joy. God is a giver of joy. He's generous with the distribution of joy and the things he's given to us. So Carol and I were, so I'm, I'm in the middle of Ecclesiastes and I get a call from somebody in the church and they said, hey, steaks are on sale, um, seven bucks at Harris Teeter. And so I, I called Carol and said, hey, let's get a steak and... So we ate it, and I mean, it was good. It was really juicy. And I just remember sitting there looking at her and saying, I'm really glad God made steak. It was really good. Thank you, God, for making the steak. It was moist. It was juicy. It was delicious. But I was hungry the next day. Still had to eat the next day. You know, th these gifts of God are, are to help us see that he is a good God, that we can have joy in this life. It's just not in the things of life that we're to take the joy. So enjoy them, but don't trust in them. They won't furnish you. They don't have the foundational strength to support you. So enjoy the gifts. Just don't trust in them. And then the third takeaway would be work for the glory of God. We are called to work. Work for the glory of God. Most of us don't work for the glory of God. I think we would say that we work because we have to. So we could kind of follow the seven dwarves who said, you know, I owe, I owe, it's off to work, I go. You know, we work because we have to work. But I'm saying to you, change the attitude. Work because you get to glorify God in it. Listen, work was never intended by God to be drudgery. When you look in the garden, think about this for a minute. In Genesis chapter 1, he creates the man and the woman, and he says, be fruitful and multiply, subdue and exercise dominion over the earth. That's what they're called to do. And what he's saying is, be fruitful. this is a mandate God has given to the king and the queen of the earth, us, humanity. He's saying, I'm giving you my image. Here's your mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, and then subdue and exercise proper godly dominion over the world. He's not saying simply, just go have children. You know, having children is a wonderful gift that we've been given to do. We are procreating with God. We're bringing forth life. But it's not just about that. It's about all of creation. We're called to use the wisdom and the gifts that he's given to us to have all of creation flourish, to build things and to develop things. You know, Because when God gave creation to man and woman, it was perfect, but it wasn't complete. That was their task to be godlike figures and complete the perfection of this earth. Now, we know the story. They rebelled against God. They wanted to make gods out of these gifts. And so God, of course, cursed the earth. So now work became drudgery. Now it's going to be thorns and thistles. Now you're going to work and you're going to eat from your work, but it's going to be with the, with the sweat of your brow. But it wasn't always that way. Just remember this too. Jesus took joy in his work, even in his saving work who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We can have a joy as we glorify God. The Son was glorifying the Father by serving, by giving his life. It was for joy that he died.
and was raised. So how do we glorify God? Many of you work with tough bosses. You're working in situations where relationships are to toxic. Maybe you wish you had this job or that job. How do we glorify God? Like when you're driving to work tomorrow, how will you seek to glorify God? Well, number one, let me just tell you that I would ask you to repent of your idolatry. Repent of the tendency to always think if I had this job at this place, or if I had more pay, or if I had a better environment in which to work, or if my boss was different, or if the office environment was different. Just repent of that. You can find joy, and you can glorify God right where you are. You can. His Spirit is sufficient to help you do that. So let's repent of that. Number two, I would ask you to invest in the relationships that you have. Take people out to lunch. Engage them in their lives. What are they struggling with? Look for an opportunity to share the hope that is within you of Christ. But invest in them. Don't just see it as a job. You punch in, you punch out, you're done. No, God has sovereignly placed you where you are. You have relationships there. If you're a Christian and you know the blessings of what it means to be forgiven by God, then engage that with other people. And then thirdly, work diligently. What are your gifts? What are you called to do? Work as if God is your supervisor. And give what you can give to the best degree that you are able to your employer, to your employer and your customer. Whoever the end person is that gets the product that you're working on. Work in a way that, that your employer will see your diligence, your proper use of giftings, and that your customer receives fair treatment, a good product. So if you're a baker, make good bread and make it for the glory of God. Drive in and say, God, I, I want to glorify you with everything that my hand touches. Before I get in the, out of bed in the morning, I always try to pray, God, before my, heat, before my feet hit the floor, God, I want to glorify you today. I want to glorify Whatever you ask me to do, I want to do it in a way that you're honored. And then also work with honesty. Don't engage in gossip. Don't, don't pass along false statements of people. I mean, speak with care. Exercise kindness. All these things will make you a model employee. And it gives you a platform. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, you're doing these things for the glory of God. You won't be forgotten when you do it for God's glory. Now, we just heard about all the work that was done. It's all going to be forgotten unless it's done for God's glory. If you work for God's glory, it'll never be forgotten. You know that? Even Jesus said that. Even a cup of cold water, he says, will not be forgotten. That's a pretty small task to just give. But when you do it for God's glory, it lasts. And then fourth, seek to please God with your life. And, and I want to explain that. You see it there in 26a. You know, in 26a, he says, um, where am I? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. So, but, but look at the rest of it. He, he says, but to the sinner. So what he's doing here in this last verse of this sermon He's holding up two people. He's saying there's one who pleases God and there's one who doesn't. So be the one that pleases God. The one that pleases God is the one that receives knowledge and wisdom and joy. Okay, the question is then what? How do we please God? 
How can we please God? Well, I would say this, that the writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So faith, exercising faith in God pleases God. Now, what I mean by exercising faith, I don't want you just to believe that he exists. Yes, I do, but more. I want you to believe that God not only exists, but he exists to save us from exile. God had a plan from the beginning that he would draw us out of exile to himself. God had a plan to redeem us. God has a plan to save us. So all of Ecclesiastes is wisdom for us before we get to heaven. It's how are we to live in this world of exile. And what he's saying here is that we please God by having faith that he, the Father, has given a son, promised back in Genesis 3, and the son is going to redeem us. He's going to buy us back. He's going to save us from the exile under which we're living right now. How does he do it? Well, what put us into exile? Well, sin. Sin brought about a curse. The ground was cursed. Childbirth was cursed. And so when Jesus comes, this is the blessing, our faith is in a God who would send a son who would bear a curse. He bears the curse of sin so as to forgive us from our sin that we can be redeemed from exile. Just like he sent Moses to pull the people out of Egypt. They were in exile. They were under bondage of sin. He brought them out and he created a people. A people to worship God. That's what he's doing with us. That by faith in Christ, Christ bears our curse. We receive forgiveness. We're created into a people and we worship God and we're being led out of exile. That's the Bible story. Paul says it this way in Galatians. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. By faith, and this is really how we become Christians, by entrusting ourselves to the work of Christ, by trusting Christ as the one who bore our curse, we are forgiven of sin, we're given the Spirit of God. We've been sealed now as his inheritance. We've been sealed in the Spirit to be a child of God. Now our lives have meaning. Why? Because we live forever. All of your works matter. What you say, what you do, it all matters. Your life will continue on. The rest, death, ends all meaning and all value for those apart from God. But for those who have been redeemed because Christ has borne their curse, their lives matter. Your life matters now. I don't care whether it's washing clothes. I don't care if it's running a company. It's the same thing. We're living for the glory of God, which gives us meaning, value, purpose, and our works will extend. So it gives us purpose. So everything matters that you do. The sad thing is in 26, when he says, but the sinner. It's a warning to us. He says, but to the sinner. This is, this is the rest of mankind, those who have not been redeemed. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, if you have not seen that he needs to bear the curse, we see the curse out there in the vanity and the futility of things. You see the curse, you see the thorns, you see the weeds, you see the cancer, you see all the aspects of a curse. Listen, he says, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. You know, this is a picture of the world right here. 
they've been given, the, those who are the sinner, those who are apart from God, they haven't come to faith in Christ, they're the ones, their business in life, they just keep gathering, they just keep collecting, and they think they are being filled, and yet they don't realize they've got to keep gathering, they've got to keep collecting, they never hit the fill line, it just keeps leaking out, it keeps turning vanity, chasing after the, that is the world. What is success? Getting more, being more, more accolades. And it's all vanity, and no one sees it. It, it, The irony of Scripture is profound. This is what we go for, and this is the life of the fool. It reminds you of Luke 12, you know, when Jesus tells that parable about the man who had very plentiful fields, and they kept producing more and more crops. And so what did he say? Well, good nails. Let's build bigger and bigger barns. And he does. Builds bigger and bigger barns. And he keeps just what? He's gathering and collecting, just like in 26b. He's gathering. And what does Jesus say? And, and what the man says is, look at the fields. I'm going to take my life easy. I'm going to retire. I'm going to really sit back and relax and just coast it out right into the sunset. And, of course, Jesus renders the, just that awful verdict. He says, you're a fool. You don't even know that your life is required of you. Death will come and take it all away, and you'll be forgotten. And you've built your house on sand right next to the ocean. It's all gone. Don't even know you exist. Don't be the fool. We want to be the wise. We want to be the one that says, no, 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 I do live in a world of exile. That changes the way we look at struggles. It means that even when tragedy comes into our life, we recognize, but for a time, but for a time, because I'm a pilgrim. I'm not going to remain in exile all my life. That we, we look at life with sober judgment. That we rejoice in the small things. We don't have to. You know, when people, it's interesting, when people often get the news that their life is on a shorter runway than they expect, they always go to enjoying the simple things of life. Let's do that now. Let's enjoy the, the food that we eat, the drink that we drink, and the, the relationships that we have, the work that we have. Enjoy. Thank God for it. And then, and then when you go to work, and it may be at the office, it may be in the home, it may be in there, just glorify God. Say, God, thank you for this. Thank you for giving me. i got to study this book. i got to write a paper. I don't really want to, but I want to glorify you in it. Let me do it. And then, and then please God by just rejoicing over one has come to bear a curse for us. So let's ask God right now. Let's just bow our heads in silence and, and ask God for his spirit Uh, to maybe convict us or to encourage us. For those of you who, you're not Christian, ask God to reveal himself to you. His arm's not too short. He can make himself very clear to you. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.